Uh, we're doing a series on membership, as Alex said, and we're calling it Restart, um, which, which has a nice, like, really cool graphic. We always have cool graphics at this church because uh, our uh, operations manager, Bridget, is fantastic. Um, but we've identified that we're at kind of a hinge moment in the life of our church. We're dealing with a vastly different social and spiritual landscape than we saw in January 2019. Uh, there's new opportunities all over the place, and there's also new challenges all over the place. Can I hear an amen to that? Um, so our goal as pastors is to equip y'all, or yins, uh, to respond to the Holy Spirit's dynamic work in these times. Let me say that again. Our goal as pastors is to equip this body to respond to the Holy Spirit's dynamic work in these times. So as a part of this equipping, we're talking about church membership. Uh, essentially, we're aiming to look at the New Testament to see what Jesus and his apostles say that church membership is. And then we want to say that's what church membership is too. We're like one for one plagiarizing, right? Um, and our aim in this series isn't to set up some newfangled hardcore standard that weeds out everybody but the spiritual elite. Rather, we're just trying to listen to God's word and allow his spirit to draw us further up and further in. So if we had like it on our books that it's required that you have the church logo, which is quite fantastic, tattooed on your left palm, if that was like a requirement for membership, and we cracked open the Bible and looked at what it means to be a church member, uh, we would have to say, eh, we've got to nix that rule. Sorry, guys. Like, it looks cool. You can if you want to, but we cannot require you to do that. Likewise, um, if we had a rule that said church membership means having your name on a piece of paper somewhere in a filing drawer, we would open up the New Testament and say, sorry, guys, that's not what it means, actually. Um, so we've opened up the scriptures, we're looking at what they say about the church, and we saw three consistent themes that church members are called to commit, to connect, and contribute. And I get to talk about the middle one this morning, connection. I want to think with you this morning about connection. And specifically, I want to talk about the character of real connection, the center of real connection, and the cost of real connection. Character, center, and cost. Yes, I did get a little carried away with the acronyms um, or with the alliteration. So first, the character of connection. Um, I'm wondering if you ever felt truly connected. Uh, the time that stands out for me was the spring of my junior year of high school. Uh, there was this friend who kept asking me to come to this Wednesday night Bible study, and I really didn't want to go, so I kept making excuses to avoid it. I have too much homework. I can't make it this week. Maybe next time. And then next week comes, oh, my parents are doing something. They made me go out to dinner. Can't make it. Uh, okay, the next thing, I have some sort of, like, sports thing or whatever. Finally, this friend came to me and said, it starts at 7. I'll be at your house at 6.30. How's that for intimidating? Uh, and they did. They drove to my house in their Jeep Wrangler, and they picked me up and drove me to this thing. And I walked in, and it was like the twilight zone of contemporary American high school culture. Um, everything was just totally off. Um, it, was, it was like the inverse of what I saw every day in the halls of my high school. You had the mega popular linebacker from the football team who was like sharing inside jokes with this pasty weirdo from the robotics club. 
and then you had this like emo skateboarder kid who I was like certain was on a lot of drugs, but he wasn't actually. Um, he loved Jesus, and he was uh, hanging out with like all these like clean-cut, overachiever 4.0 type kids. And I'm like, wait, you guys are friends? What's going on here? Um, and then there, it was like this weird conglomeration that didn't make any sociological sense. Um, and the, the weirdest thing, this is what really creeped me out, is that they are all genuinely glad to see me. <laughs> uh, so, um, and that, yeah. And that Bible study became, for me, uh, this place that, emerging out of a very deep and dark time in my own life, I was able to relax and to breathe and to let my hair down and to tell stupid jokes, some of which really just didn't land. Um, I know it's a rare thing for me, but... Uh, and, and I was able to be my raw, undignified self and be known for who I am. And that actually changed my life. Did you know that a moment of liberation in community like that can utterly change a person in an instant? Um, and I didn't know it at the time, but that Twilight Zone Bible study, as I'm now calling it, gave me a, a glimpse into the character of the church as Jesus and his apostles saw it. Uh, in at least four of his letters, I didn't check that hard, so there's probably more, but at least four, the Apostle Paul tells these groups of Christians that together they are the Messiah's, what? Body. I can't, isn't that weird? Uh, of all the things, uh, I would have said, you are the Society of Christ. You are the League of Christ. You are the Army of Christ. Or you're the political party of Christ. You are the super PAC of Christ. You are the disciples of Christ. Or, like, let's be really intimate and scandalous. You are the family of Christ. All those are way too distant. All, way, way, way too, way too abstract. He says, you're the body. It doesn't get any more intimate than your own body. Like, your family, we're, you're close, but you're not physically connected to them the way you are to your own hand says that you're his body, you're this living organism composed of these carefully arranged parts that actually bear no real resemblance to one another at all. Like your hand and your eye, like you wouldn't guess, if you just saw them as separate things, you wouldn't guess that they're like part of the same thing, right? Um, except that they're absolutely essential to one another. Uh, your hand can't know what to grab if your eye doesn't tell it. Um, and he says that you church are like that. And together you manifest Jesus' physical presence on planet Earth. Together, we are the body of Christ. We manifest Jesus' physical presence on planet Earth. That's nuts. Um, and Paul talks about this idea a lot in his letter to the church in Corinth. Um, and we just read. Just as the foot can't say... Uh, oh, I don't belong because I'm not a hand, and the ear can't say, oh, I don't belong because I'm not an eye, you can't say, I don't belong because I don't fit a certain mold. I don't know about you, but I've often in church situations and in social situations felt sort of like the social little matchstick girl, right? Like, 
out in the cold, watching everyone having like this, this connection and fellowship. Everyone there is clearly friends and happy and a good, in a good place, except for me, who is just like watching and like breathing and wiping off the air with my sleeve and looking in the window longingly, wishing that I could only belong. Uh, and so much of us, so much of the time, we feel that way, right? You will look, walk into a room and you look around at the surfaces of everyone's faces, and often they look so similar, and you think, if they only knew who I really am, I would never fit in. I don't fit the mold. I'm not like them. I'm not spiritual. I'm not religious. I'm not a church person. That's just not me. And Paul says, no, no, no. It's actually the weirdness, your weirdness, your uniqueness of you that makes you uh, so important to the body. It's the uniqueness of each member that makes the whole thing functional. If everybody has the same job, then the body doesn't work. If everyone thinks like you, the body doesn't work. If everyone thinks like me, the body doesn't work. Um, This is so illustrated for me in the fact that uh, Bridget and I work on the same staff team because if I was, if it was all Ben Hughes's, like nothing would ever happen on time. It would just, like emails with like seven different times for when the event is going to happen would go out, and like there would be like jod- a jottled mess of like typos and stuff like that. So um, sorry, Bridget, I'm singling you out, but I'm super thankful um, that we are different in the ways that we are. Um, it's your uniqueness that makes you useful to the body. Um, and it turns out uh, that God intended it this way. He made you just the way that you are because he wants you to play a specific role in his physical manifestation on, pres- on planet Earth. And the other weirdos in this room need you. They need what you bring to the table uniquely. And on the other side of the coin, you need the other weirdos in this room. Um, even and especially if you have no idea how they could possibly contribute anything to you at all. Uh, I've preached for a number of years now, and over the years you notice that there's always like, um, for certain periods of time, individuals who will come and they'll just cry in one of the pews, week in, week out, cry, cry, cry. And... um, and the, oftentimes they they feel embarrassed afterwards. They're like, I don't contribute anything to the body. I'm just all I do is I show up and I break down. Um, and I I guess I this is a message to all of you who when you cry at church, which probably will be all of you at some point. Um, you actually don't know that when I'm preaching and I see someone in tears, I that sends a signal to me that the spirit is doing something right now. And it changes what happens in this relational dynamic that edifies everyone in the body. So you showed up in your brokenness just thinking that you're doing nothing but being a leech, sucking uh, and taking from everything. But what you don't know is that actually in your vulnerability, you are pouring out and God is using you. So showing up to church is important, man. The other people in this room need you to show up to church, even if you're a mess like me. Um, and it turns, so it turns out that Jesus, being Jesus' body, being connected in this way, takes this great humility and vulnerability. It means that sometimes you're the one serving. Sometimes you're like on your game and you're bringing the freezer meals to everybody in the church. And then sometimes you're the one being served. You're just broken. 
Sometimes you pour yourself out. Sometimes you just sit there and receive. And the core of it is that as a member of Christ's body, you no longer have to go it alone. How cool is that? You don't have to navigate the rest of your life alone. When you're so old that you can't even make it out to church, guess what? If you're a part of Christ's body, people will come to you. We'll come to you. That's what it means to be a part of this thing. You don't have to do any of it alone. Never alone. So in Paul's words, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. At the end of the day, church membership isn't about having your name and picture in the directory, right? I actually don't care if you vote or not at the annual meeting. We try to be unanimous in all of our decisions anyways as a body. So it doesn't actually really matter that much. Sorry, am I allowed to say that? <laughs> um, church membership is about connection. Do you share life with the others in the body? Are you in their homes? Are they in your home? Can others identify your gifts? Do they know your struggles? Do they know all the ways that you're a total weirdo? What's your strange, ho- strange dorky hobby? Do the other people know about it? Um, if you answer these questions with a resounding no, then actually the fix for this is so simple. Um, ask someone to f- coffee after the service, right? Uh, invite yourself to their house for dinner. <laughs> Jesus did it. Why can't you? You're not too weird. We need what you bring. No one here is an outlier unless they choose to be. So that's the character of real connection. Now I want to say something about the center. Um, as I read the New Testament, I get the sense that the earliest Christian command- communities were scandalously diverse. Um, it's a buzzword now, I know. Uh, but, like, they took it to a whole new level. Um, in Paul's churches, you have Jews and you have former pagans, really religious people and, like, crazy emperor-worshipping people. Um, you have slaves and you have free people. So in Karl Marx's terms, you have the proletariat, like sitting down and having a meal with the bourgeoisie, right? It's sociologically impossible. Or take Jesus' disciples. Um, and I owe this metaphor to my friend Ethan Magnus. Um, I just have to like, let you know I'm plagiarizing him here. Um, he said this, if I'm picking a team, I, wanna, I want people to think more or less like me, right? Um, I want competent people who know like when to shut up, when I want them to shut up. Um, no passive aggression, no sociopaths, no constant naysayers, no, co- no complainers. Um, who does Jesus pick? <laughs> WWJD. Um, he picks Peter, who's emotionally schizophrenic. He's hot, then he's cold, then he's hot, then he's cold. He's in, then he's out, then he's in, then he's out. He picks Thomas, who is so skeptical that he just gets annoying. He picks John, who's just like a mystical hippie, like kind of off like contemplating things. There's Nathaniel, uh, also called Bartholomew, who's xenophobic. He says of Jesus when he meets him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Those people up there, can there, is there anything good out of them? Um, he picks James, who believes in ethnic cleansing. Um, James had a run-in with the Samaritans, and what does he ask Jesus? He asks for permission to call down fire from heaven to kill them all. 
Um, he picks Matthew, the tax collector, who's a Benedict Arnold in his time, who sold out his family and friends because he wanted a juicy paycheck from the Romans. He picks Simon the Zealot, who joined an underground militia and hides in a cave and stockpiles weapons so he can kill people like Matthew. Um, He picked Judas Iscariot, the greedy coward who embezzles church funds and betrays the Son of God for a bag of silver. This is the crew that Jesus picked. He could have had so many competent people. There were lots of competent rabbis in ancient Palestine. Think of the Apostle Paul. There were like, guys like him were like a dime a dozen back then. Why does Jesus pick these guys? Do you think maybe he's trying to tell us something? Without question, the Jesus movement is more diverse than any society or organization or movement in human history. And that's by every metric, ethnically, economically, by Myers-Briggs, personality type, you name it. There is no more diverse movement in human history than the Christian movement. Um, Jesus has this way of gathering these souls from every conceivable corner of the known universe and then unifying them into this diverse but like together body. And the center, the unifying core of the society is actually Jesus himself. Uh, People encounter this loving, gracious savior who makes no compromises, who holds completely to the standard of what is good and true and right, and yet loves each of these weirdos with this unique kind of love that is singular and so deeply personal Uh, that it utterly captivates them. So if you look around this room and Jesus Christ turns out to be the only thing you have in common with the people in this community, I just want to say that that's more than enough. It's more than enough. You don't need to share anything else. That's the only way you actually should be relating to one another anyways. He's a better center than anything else you can come up with. He's better than politics. He's better than your temperament. He's better than whatever Enneagram you identify with. He's better than your life stage, whether you have kids or not, whether you're a grandparent or you never had children at all. Um, He's better than blood kinship. He's better than your marital vows. It is a more significant relationship than anything else because you come through the blood of the God-man. Nothing else compares to it. We have, we have, if we have one thing in common, then we have everything in common. So there you have it. The character of real connection and the center of real connection. Lastly, I want to say something about the cost. Uh, over the last decade, I've seen a lot of my peers give up on the church. Um, I've actually had a seminarian and a full-out ordained pot pastor come to me and donate their entire theological library to me because I said I'm done with the faith. Um, And the refrain they keep hearing is something like this. I was raised in the church, but I've had enough. Uh, Churches are emotionally toxic cesspools full of radically dysfunctional people who are guaranteed to wound you and disappoint you. It's not worth it to me anymore. You know what I think? I think they're right. They're absolutely right. That is a spot-on assessment. Man. We have a saying in my house that hurt. You guys seem a little bit, a little wounded by that. Sorry. (laughs) Um, We have a saying in my house that hurt people hurt people. Um, When you put a bunch of wounded people together, 
in a group uh, what happens, and we're all wounded. We just are. Um, if you're over the age of three, you're wounded. Um, if you're before the age of three, you're just still wounding. Um, <laughs> but you get, you put all these people together and you get chaos and controversy and hurt feelings and lots of pain. Um, but that's actually not a church problem. That's a human problem. Uh, you'll find the same issues at Fox Chapel Garden Club, at Shadyside Academy, uh, at the local Boy Scout troop, at your workplace, and especially at Thanksgiving dinner. Um, so let's just be honest about the fact together that staying connected to the church is really hard. It is. Um, there's a cost, right? It means... It means giving your time and money when you want to use your time and money for things that you know, you're into. Um, it means showing up as part of your weekend and part of your week uh, to be with people who frankly make you uncomfortable. It means taking a risk and opening yourself up and letting yourself be known a little bit. And you know, when you take a risk, and you're emotionally present and vulnerable, that's when someone can sneak a knife in, right? That's scary. But that's what it means to connect. It means trusting and entering into real relationships with people who are going to disappoint you. I know this is a real sales pitch for church right now, but it's true. And it means that when you do get hurt, uh, that you forgive. And forgiving is hard. Re-upping the ante with a community again and again and again is really hard. Um, and left to our own selves and our own flesh, at least I can speak for me, if I look at those challenges and I say the same thing, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it anymore. Um, I'd rather go golfing. I'd rather go for a walk in the woods and feel spiritual this morning. I'd rather do anything but show up in that stuffy room with those people who are so difficult for me, with whom I have so much baggage and stir up all of that emotion and all of that pain that comes with walking into the door of a church. I would rather do anything but go to dinner with those people. It's just too much for me right now. It takes courage. And left to ourselves, we do not have courage. It's just not worth it we say. But here's the thing, that's not what Christ thought. He looked upon all the sins of the church, all the mess and brokenness, all of our tendency toward fragmentation, um, all of our curving in upon ourselves, uh, all of our cowardice, our hypocrisy, our rage, the passive aggression that we pull out toward one another. And he looked upon that uh, and all that it would cost to redeem that, and he said, I'll pay. Yep. No question about it, I'll pay. Um, Paul was constantly helping the churches to navigate these differences when things got hard. So, and this is what he says. This is what he says about what Jesus did. Pay attention to this. Uh, Ephesians 2.14. He, Christ himself, is our peace, who made us all, who made us both, despite our differences, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Is there any more like forceful language of breaking down our barriers than that? He abolished it in his own body. So if, if you will, like, just look around for a second. Look around at the other people in this, in this room. Um, these are your brothers and sisters for whom Jesus bled and suffered an agonizing death. Um, and he broke down in his own body whatever walls divide you from the person across the room. Who would you excise from the kingdom in this room if you had the choice? Who's just too difficult for you? Um, who just who doesn't quite make the measure? Jesus died to purchase your unity with that person. Um, so church, um, we, are, we are the sons and daughters for whom the Messiah gave his life. And um, I think the, the word that, uh, that God has for us is that let's, let's not blaspheme that sacrifice by, by quietly going our way by retreating into the corners, by, by scaling back. But let's press further up and further in into all that Christ has for us because it is good. He wants to redeem you. He died for you. He loves you, and he will do it. Amen.